As feared and anticipated, Vladimir Putin has sent his troops over the border into Ukraine, an act of aggression and a blatant violation of international law. If Ukrainians over the days ahead display courage, defiance, and determination, can they stop Putin from stripping them of their right to independence, sovereignty, and self-determination? Having shown little will to contain Putin after he dismembered Georgia in 2008, and after he seized Crimea from Ukraine and annexed it in 2014, what can and what should American and European leaders do now? And if Putin emerges victorious from this war, will that sate his appetite or wet it? I'm Cliff May. Discussing this is, these issues with me today are James Brook, FDD Visiting Fellow, who has lived in and covered Russia for the New York Times, Bloomberg, The Voice of America, and other publications. Also with us is Ivana Stradner, Jean Kirkpatrick Visiting Research Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and John Hardy, Research Manager and Research Analyst at FDD. I'm pleased you're joining us too, here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are Every no U.S. Rules. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. So, John, let me begin with you. Um, Fast-moving situation. Um, as we record this uh, on Thursday morning, What's the military situation? What do we know? I know you've been tracking a million, uh, a million different sources uh, online and elsewhere. Go ahead. Right. Yeah. Thanks, Cliff. As you say, very fast moving uh, information flying about, but I'll try to give you, uh, you know, the best sense I can as of early this morning. So um, late uh, yesterday morning, uh, Moscow time, uh, Putin released a speech, which was actually pre-recorded on Monday. Um, announcing that Russia is beginning a special military operation, the goal of which is to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine, basically uh, install a puppet regime that will cut military ties with the West. So uh, as expected, Russia has conducted numerous missile and airstrikes against key Ukrainian military targets and infrastructure, talking about things like uh, air defenses, command posts, air bases, ports, bridges, and weapons storage facilities. And this is throughout the entirety of Ukraine. So the capital, east, west, et cetera. Uh, meanwhile, airborne troops are dropping behind Ukrainian lines to seize critical points, including one of uh, uh, the capital's airports. Uh, meanwhile, Russian ground forces are attacking from multiple axes, including from Belarus, northeastern Ukraine, Donbass, and Crimea. Russian forces will likely conduct a pincher movement to encircle Ukrainian forces in the east, where the bulk of the Ukrainian military is located. Uh, and the goal there is to cut them off from the capital and prevent them from conducting an organized retreat. Then another pincher movement will attack the capital and you know, overthrow the regime. Uh, I, let me just follow up. Do we have any sense that Putin is demanding or asking um, President Zelensky of Ukraine 
to surrender, to capitulate, to get in a plane, get out of the country? Do any sense of that? Yeah, so in his, sp- in his speech, you know, uh, Putin said, you know, Ukrainian forces lay down your arms and you won't be harmed. Um, Zelensky tried calling Putin, but apparently went unanswered. Um, so I don't think Putin's really interested in negotiating at this point. Um, I, I saw one, I have to stress, unconfirmed report that there was uh, you know, Turkish uh, military transport aircraft uh, in the capital potentially to take away you know, the president. But again, that's, that's unconfirmed, so I can't uh, validate that. Got it. I- I- Ivana, I think a, a little background just to remind people. I mentioned that in 2008, Putin carved two chunks out of Georgia. He didn't take over the whole country. He took two provinces in South Ossetia uh, and Abkhazia. And they are essentially vassals of Russia and have been ever since. Uh, 2014, I mentioned he invaded Crimea. I had plenty of forces there already. And he event- he annexed it in a very short order. Um, but also, which I didn't mention, in 2014, he began to support separatists in the Donbass region. This is the whole eastern region. Just talk a little bit about what has happened <laughs> and what our reaction in the West has been to what's been going on in the whole eastern section of Ukraine that borders Russia. Yeah, absolutely. So let me maybe just give you a time frame how we actually how it got to be this way. So everything started already, you know, um, the, the crisis in Ukraine in 2013 against the president Viktor uh, Yanukovych uh, because he decided not to move forward with the uh, European Union integration. And there was a huge, huge crackdown, like a protest in the country that escalated further. And he decided to leave the country in 2014, February. And guess what? Immediately, the month later, uh, Russia decided to employ its well-known hybrid warfare um, uh, doctrine uh, and employ a little green man. So basically, Russia was like, we have nothing to do with this. Um, and they took uh, the, the, their troops actually to control over uh, the Crimean uh, region. Um, and guess what? It's a very similar situation like now. So everything that our intelligence cited about the pretext, it's really nothing new because that's precisely what Russia was doing even back then, arguing that that was a need you know, to protect the rights of Russian citizens and Russian speakers living in, in Crimean um, Southeast Ukraine. Um, so uh, in terms of, you know, the pretext, it was absolutely a similar thing. And um, several months later, uh, we saw like a pro-Russian separatists in Donetsk and Luhansk region of Eastern U- U- Ukraine, uh, that they actually had a referendum to declare uh, independence of Ukraine. Um, and of course, you know, Russian troops, they fully took control uh, over Crimea um, before they annexed it. So um, this is really nothing new in terms of that. And then it continued in 2014 um, because it further escalated uh, with the European Union. I don't know if some of you can remember uh, where I was actually a Malaysian Airlines uh, flight that was shot over the Ukrainian airspace. That was really a landmark um, moment for this particular crisis. And then, of course, Everyone asked, like, why Putin was acting this way? Probably he's thinking, he was thinking, why not? Because even then, uh, the United States and European Union, they were quite quiet about this whole thing. But then in 2015, they decided to uh, seize this uh, violence uh, with the means accords that you're going to hear, and like you probably hear every single day uh, now in the news. So this was, you know, a short of history. And um, 
and Biden yesterday, actually two days ago, he said he said um, that the invasion began um, two days ago. That was, I think, very wrong because the Russian invasion already started in 2014. This is just the continuation of what Putin has been doing over the past eight years, and I think we should really perceive it through those lenses. Jim, I'm, I'm going to ask you a kind of threshold question here, and Ivana and John, you know, think about it. if you want to answer it to you can. Let's. I can imagine somebody listening to this uh, this podcast and saying, you know what, I, I I don't know anything about Ukraine. I don't care about Ukraine. Why are they all so upset about Ukraine? You know, it was part of the Soviet Union. And now Putin wants it part of Russia. This is not important to me. Why should America care about this? Yeah, well, thank you, Cliff. Well, there are 40 million Ukrainians who want to be part of the West, who want to be part of the EU, who look West, who uh, vacation in the EU, who work in the EU, who uh, study in the EU. And they're really overwhelmingly oriented westward, and um, they want to be part of that. I think in the bigger picture, we will remember today, April 24, the way people remember December 7 and 9-11. Uh, this is a turning page in history. For the first time in 75 years, a European state has attacked another European state. It is the end of the post-Cold War benefit time when uh, the Germans can get by with a 65,000-man army. Uh, we're in a new world now. And either you stop the Russians now or you let them keep moving, and next will be the Baltics. It's very significant that... Um, the Kremlin has gobbled up Belarus, swallowed it up. Uh, they've stationed 30,000 troops. Half of them are coming into Chernobyl right now. As they're fighting over Chernobyl, which is a potential radioactive disaster. And um, But Belarus borders on two NATO member states, Latvia and Lithuania, which both happen to be former Soviet socialist republics. And uh, both are quite happy being free market, multi-party democracies. They do not want to be part of Russia. Um, so this is very important to start, stop Russia now. This is 1938 with the Germans in Sudetenland. Yes, the convenient thing was peace in our time. And at the end of that process, 50 million people were killed. Uh, so it's very, very significant that the U.S. act now and uh, keep sending anti-ship, anti-tank, anti-aircraft, anti-drone missiles to Ukraine. Ukrainians do not want American boots on the ground. Ukraine has been fighting Russia for eight years. They have the second largest Europe army in Europe after uh, Russia, 200,000 men and women. They have battle experienced veterans. They have reservists. They have their own militia. And they have a history of partisan warfare from 1944 to 54. More Soviet security personnel were killed in Western Ukraine than during um, the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. So the uh, Ukrainians can seem meek and mild and polite and nice, which they all are. They also can be very tough. And I think we're going to see that toughness coming out in coming days and weeks, starting uh, today. I'm going to make another point, which you're free to disagree with or agree with or add to. And that is this, that we fought World War II to stop an evil empire from conquering Europe and another evil empire from conquering Asia. They were alive. They were the Axis powers. We felt it was necessary not to let the world fall under the jackboots of, of, of such authority, such totalitarians. 
And then we fought the Cold War because even after World War II, a lot of Europe was still under a totalitarian jackboot, that of the Soviet Union in the Warsaw Pact. The Warsaw Pact was not like NATO. Uh, the Warsaw Pact was like the Hotel California. You can check in, but you can't check out. Remember Hungary in 1956. Remember Czechoslovakia in 1968. Um, and so that's why we fought the World War II. That's why we fought the Cold War. Now, if we are to say, yeah, Putin can go ahead and he can take over Belarus. He can take over Ukraine. He can finish taking over Georgia. And then he can turn on Western Europe um, more broadly, the Baltics, which we'll talk about in a minute. We're essentially saying, you know what? No, There was no need to fight, to fight World War II. There was no need to fight World War, the, the Cold War because we don't really care if the rest of the world ends up uh, totalitarian. Uh, and if there's no freedom and no democracy in the rest of the world, we've got oceans to protect us. Um, we have borders, although the southern border is not. <laughs> it's like a swinging screen door at this point. Uh, anybody can walk in, anybody can walk out. Um, but that's essentially what we're saying. It's a very different view of the world. Um, Ivana or John, you want to you want to comment on that? You're welcome to. If not, I, I know exactly where I want to go from here. I would like to say a few things. I really think that this is a threat to the entire world. Um, and I think as of yesterday, the world does not look um, in the same way. And this was absolutely the end of, this could be the end of international liberal order. I mean, think about this. Yesterday evening, there was an emergency session in the United Nations Security Council. And while permanent member states were putting forward their arguments, Russia started an invasion. Um, and in the midst of this whole thing, just to make a notion about the UN, I mean, we should also not forget that Russia is actually in February, um, have a presidency in the United Nations Security Council. Um, that's one thing that I would like to add. The second thing is, no matter what I put it bluntly, uh, the unilateral world order is over. We are really in the midst of the competition with China and Russia. And for many, many years, people were thinking, you know, who cares about Russia? It's a, absolutely not a great power, um, weak economy, et cetera, et cetera. And Putin thrives on this type of misunderstanding. And the third thing is, I'm afraid that Putin is not going to end here. Whoever thinks that Donbass is that's it. Uh, I'm afraid that it's going to be um, up for disappointment very soon. Uh, I'm very concerned, you know, about what's going to happen in Moldova, because what's going to happen in Moldova and Transistria, it can have a serious impact on Odessa and the Black Sea. And then uh, also Romania is at stake, uh, the Baltic states, but also the Balkans. Let alone, we should also maybe even consider what Russia is doing even in cyberspace to challenge us. Um, and the fourth thing that I would also like to add in this conversation, um, for many years, we've been having problems with the transatlantic partnership. And I think this is also a wake-up call yes. for our, uh, our European partners. Let's not forget that only three days ago, the, Russian, uh, the German chancellor, he openly stated, I cannot imagine... The war, like a war in Europe. And I think that's a very problematic thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I sometimes feel those people live in a parallel universe and this could be a, at least one positive thing um, to make a better ties with, uh, with our European partners. 
I just want to highlight a couple of things you, you said there. One is that after World War II, uh, the, the victors, really the U.S. in particular, created the UN and the UN was supposed to prevent conflicts and solve conflicts. It doesn't do that at all. Russia was put on, or the Soviet Union was put on the Security Council. Now it's Russia. China is on the Security Council. The UN is has is unhelpful here. And then you have in within the UN organizations like the UN Human Rights Council, which is a place that violators of human rights go to have impunity from criticism. I mean, it, it and Americans pay for all of this. We also have had this belief that we, if we just pronounce the word diplomacy, if we just say we're looking for a diplomatic solution, all these things go away. And this is a total, this is magical thinking, this is a fantasy. And meanwhile, NATO looks strong in a way, ex- except for the fact that it's really, uh, it's a defense alliance, people get into it, and then they expect the United States to protect them because most of the European countries are spending less than Two percent, three or so of their GDP, and they're not capable, and they're not ready. And let me just go to you, John, on this in particular, because let's suppose Putin emerges victorious, and he says, "Okay, there are ethnic Russians in Estonia, there are ethnic Russians in Lithuania, there are ethnic Russians in Latvia, and I have a province. It's called Kaliningrad, which is." west of Lithuania and not attached to Russia by land, no land bridge. And I want a land bridge. And I want to protect the poor Russian people in Lithuania who are suffering under the under the uh, under the heel of the West. Is NATO prepared? We have an, an Article 5 NATO commitment to, to defend Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. Is NATO prepared to do that successfully? John, you want to take a, a crack at that? Yeah, well, to your point, Cliff, you know, I think we, we are not prepared and we need to you know, uh, invest a lot uh, more heavily in getting prepared. Um, you know, a Russian attack against the Baltics is not a likely scenario. But, you know, if you had asked me a year ago, would Russia invade Ukraine and attempt to overthrow the regime in Kiev, I, I told you no. Hell no. So I think we need to be prepared for the fact that Putin seems to be in a different sort of headspace than he was even just a couple of years ago. Um, so, you know, predicting his next moves is not going to be easy, and we need we need to be prepared for you know a broad range of contingencies. And that means you know boosting our uh, defense investment in Europe it means you know investing in military mobility across the continent it means preparing for the implications of uh, you know a permanent a greater permanent Russian presence in Belarus. And so there are a whole a whole range of new threats in the European security environment that we and our allies need to prepare for. And I'm going to make this point before I go to you, Jim, and that is, I I believe, I think most of us FDD believe, that the U.S. capitulation to the Taliban and its de facto ally, Al-Qaeda, after all these years in Afghanistan, that sent a strong message, not least to people like Putin. And and I, I think he probably asked himself, you know, if the Americans aren't willing to fight the Taliban, I mean, these guys, you know... Really, they should be no man. Then he's not going to fight me. So if I want to take Ukraine, what am I waiting for? This is a great time. And meanwhile, as we talk, as we speak, negotiations are going on in Vienna in which we believe, I hope I'm wrong, that the U.S. is about to capitulate again, this time to the Islamic Republic of Tehran, by giving them billions of dollars in exchange for an agreement that provides no help in terms at most, at most delays very shortly, possibly, I doubt it, 
their acquisition of nuclear weapons while they are also dominating Lebanon through Hezbollah, may, having turned Lebanon into a failing state, while their militias operate with impunity in Iraq, while they support the Houthis in Yemen, while they, while they give weapons to the Palestinians in Gaza so they can foment wars there. None of this will change from this. And yet we're going to hear, I'm afraid, American diplomats saying, what a victory we have just achieved uh, in, 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 uh, in Vienna vis-a-vis -vis Tehran. And all this looks so weak. Now, saying that, Jim, I, I want to have you talk a little bit about sanctions, because a lot of people think, okay, that's what we need to do, sanctions. And President Biden is putting sanctions on Russia. But from what I can tell, tell me if I'm wrong, they're not crippling sanctions, not at this point. And I think from Putin's point of view, he's already discounted uh, the, the sanctions. He knows what they'll do and what they won't. It's an inconvenience, but it's it's unlikely to stop him. What, what do you think? Yeah, well, I agree with you. And uh, you, Russia has $600 billion in cash reserves. They have a huge pillow that can get them through the next couple of years. And Putin himself may well be the world's richest man. So the feeling is that the sanctions are going to be tough, but uh, probably not stop Putin. Uh, a few hours ago, Boris Johnson, UK prime minister, asked for uh, Russia to be expelled from SWIFT, which would be very important. That would, be. That would really hurt them in terms of their, their foreign trade. And, and people need to know SWIFT is an international banking system. If you're off SWIFT, you're, it's very hard to- North Korea. Yeah, right, 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 right. You're North Korea. You're out of it. No, I agree with you. And, and by the way, one little correction. I, I, uh, the date is February 24. I was looking forward to spring. But we were <laughs> February 24 as, as the date. You know, what is what will carry the day? It's, it's the missiles. It's the military aid. Uh, and in terms of Europe, I hope this has been a wake-up call. We've had six months of each repetitive lies by Soviet, uh, excuse me, Russian officials uh, saying we will not invade Ukraine. And uh, Peskov, the, the uh, spokesman for Putin and the spokeswoman for the foreign ministry have said this again and again, we are not playing to invade Ukraine. So if people were asleep, hopefully they woke up to the fact that you cannot trust what the Kremlin uh, says. Uh, and I do fear, uh, I do recognize that the Afghan debacle was a green light for the Kremlin. I was in Kiev in August, and I remember this happening, and I remember reading the Kremlin uh, media outlets saying, basically, Ukraine, you're next. They were saying that mm. six months ago, back in August. And the, the signal was the U.S. is weak. The U.S. bugged out of Afghanistan. The U.S. sold them down the river, let them fall apart. And uh, surprise, surprise, Ukraine, start packing your bags for, for the West. So... Uh, that that is an obvious lesson in uh, the impact of being weak, and um, I, I do think I agree with you, Ivana, on what's called the, the salami tactics. Oh, you know, we'll just give them Kharkiv and Odessa, and maybe they'll be happy with that, and it just keeps going and going and going. Um, the famous Soviet approach to diplomacy that uh, what I have mine is mine, and what is yours is negotiable. <laughs> we can talk about that. Ivana, Jim, you have a comment says, do, do we have any sense of how Russians are responding to this? Now, that's a hard thing to know because poll, I don't trust. There are, some, there are polls, but I don't really trust the polls. And I don't. And we have had seen demonstrations that have been closed out. I don't know. What's your sense of how Russians are perceiving what's going on here? 
I'm monitoring quite closely uh, information space in Russia. And first and foremost, it's very, very polluted, um, given, but it's nothing new because Russia has been peddling its agenda and propaganda for a very long time. So uh, in terms of the Russian opposition, we already know how the Russian opposition um, ends up over there in prison and completely silenced. Um, um, so there were a couple of uh, there were a couple of people who tried to protest and they were immediately uh, arrested. Uh, I do not also foresee any big protests against this type of war, and I'm not surprised because we already know what happened last year and the year before when people actually tried to protest against uh, against uh, the Putin's regime. Um, I'm also concerned about one particular thing. Some people, you know, could claim, yeah, we can actually spread information on social media platforms. And Putin knows this thing. And last year he made this um, new law on social media, um, um, which is, in my view, a draconian law, because everything that Putin doesn't like, he, he immediately punishes social media platforms. And not only that. He already have capabilities. He already has capabilities for a, for uh, an alternative internet, Runet. Um, he already made alternative uh, social media platforms. So whoever you know thinks that young Russians can actually um, in the future can have uh, real information, um, that I think will be up to debate. And um, in terms of what the Russian media is saying. Um, if that was also your question, um, certainly they're claiming that they are the victims of genocide. All of those things that our Intel community has been sharing about uh, pretext and uh, false flag operations. So information is absolutely polluted and information space over there uh, just uh, mirrors what Putin um, wants his audience to hear. So my two cents on this is that if Putin wins and wins quickly and cleanly, a lot of people say, you know what? He's strong and he's standing up for Russian interests, and that's great. And if a lot of body bags come back, they'll say, you know, what did he get us into this for? And that's sort of natural psychology. But what you, I mean, part of go ahead, Ivana. Yeah. So I just wanted to, you know, uh, add one more thing. One of the major concerns, I was very, very concerned, you know, by reading Russian news, the rhetorics was absolutely like the Soviet era. Um, they absolutely changed the rhetorics. And this rise of nationalism over there has been rising rapidly. And in terms of how many people die in Russia, first of all, I'm not even sure that Putin has any obligation to disclose this information. And second, does actually really Putin on care about those things? Look, every single American soldier who died, we have a memorial wall, et cetera, et cetera. Something like that does not exist in Russia. They're just going to knock on the first available door and get another 18-year-old and send him to uh, fight for Russia. So I really think uh, about this crisis, we really need to start thinking um, uh, like the Kremlin things. You know, the, the FTD houses something called the Barish Center on Media Integrity. And this raises some really interesting issues that I hope we'll, we'll study more. I'll go to maybe go to you, John, on this to begin with, and, and that is the extent with which and the skill with which Putin manages to use disinformation. And people don't know that disinformation is not an English word; it comes from the Russian word disinformatia, right? It's a, it, and it's different from misinformation. John, just tell us a little bit about that. And Jim, you know a, you know a lot about it too, uh, from your years there. 
Yeah, thanks, Cliff. So, you know, the Russians and the Soviets before them have a long history of you know, using uh, disinformation as part of you know, active measures to influence, subvert, you know, shape uh, foreign countries and you know, their governments and their, their people. And disinformation has really been a huge uh, integral part of this uh, conflict uh, you know, for months now, whether it's the, the um, false flag attacks uh, in Donbass and elsewhere, um, you know, trying to create pretext for, for Russian military aggression. So, you know, Putin is always trying to uh, shape the way uh, people look at Russia, have their pressure on their government, their faith in their government, undermining confidence. Uh, it's really integral to, um, to the way that the Russian special services, you know, uh, conduct activity abroad. Jim, you want to add anything on that? Yeah, just a couple of things if I could. Uh, one, Ivana, I had a friend in uh, Moscow who sent me a message on Viber saying, Jim, you know what's going on. What's going on? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and she's in the Russian media capital and she doesn't understand what's happening. Um, there are a couple of opinion polls of Russian men between 18 and 25 overwhelmingly disinterested in attacking Ukraine. Uh, as we know, they're probably a million minimum Russians who have relatives in Ukraine. Uh, there's a lot of family ties there. Um, you know, if this were a war against Chechnya, there might be more popular support. Um, I think also on the genocide issue, I, I did this piece for FDD that was put up on the website about 48 hours ago. Uh, prior to, just as the Georgian war started, then President Medvedev started accusing Georgia of genocide and of killing South Ossetians en masse, thousands, usually were thousands, and the Kremlin media immediately picked it up. It's a thousands, thousands, thousands killed. And the Ossetians later said, this desensitized us to the ethnic cleansing of Georgian villages. When we heard, when you heard about the thousands killed, we said, you know, screw them, burn them out, send them down to Georgia, whatever. These are communities they'd lived next to for hundreds of years. Um, now this is what's happening. And then six months after the war was over, the Russians came out with an official death toll of 168, not thousands, but 168. So it's very much part of their, their blueprint, their MO of uh, disinformation, which has concrete impacts uh, and just dis distracting people and, and setting up very bad, bad views of things. Um, I think Putin is very sensitive about body bags. We saw this. I was in Moscow during the Second Chechen War. And he was breaking up these mothers of soldiers movements and groups and um, secret burials. Uh, we've seen that with Russian officers and soldiers killed inside the occupied parts of Ukraine. Uh, photographers are chased out of tombs, out of cemeteries. Tombstones do not show where these men were killed. Uh, they've really tried to to uh, throw the cloak over uh, the death toll there. So that, uh, and I know the Ukrainians now are gunning for Russian soldiers and determined to run up the death tally. And Putin will have to, you know, Stalin lost quarter million men in Stalingrad and he called it a victory. Uh, the demographics of Russia are totally different. This is a society that is slowly imploding. Uh, the Slavic portion is imploding uh, slowly. There's a shortage of young men and uh, families and communities and apartment blocks do, no, do not want to lose their young men. And uh, so he's going to have to keep the 
the wraps on the death toll and uh, keep the death toll down if you can, which I don't think was going to work. But that's where if we I, are. If I just jump in quickly to pick up on Jim's point, you know, it's not just contract uh, soldiers uh, participating in this operation. There's actually uh, conscripts as well. Um, and, and, you know, think about the fact that Putin did only, didn't only lie to the West and to, to Ukraine about his intentions uh, in Ukraine, he also lied to, you know, thousands of uh, families of Russian soldiers who, you know, they were sent to Belarus or from wherever from you know, thousands of miles away in, the, in Russia's far east saying, oh, you're here for exercises. Well, you know, that drags on. Now they're participating in, in military operations, including uh, conscripts. You know, this, this can have a very destabilizing effect uh, on the socio-political environment, including on you know, military retention and, and recruitment. So, you know, this could have far-reaching uh, impacts. Go ahead, Ivan. So I just wanted to add one more thing in terms of uh, Russia's disinformation. So uh, last year, Russia, um, Russia just had a new national security strategy. And for the first time um, since Putin came to power, they mentioned for the first time information security um, in the national security strategy. Mm. And uh, a few months ago, actually, a Russian minister of, of defense, Shoigu, he said that information has become a weapon. Mm. And uh, not only that, in 2017, Russia also established information troops. So uh, Russia pays so much attention to information security because Russia correctly understands whoever has um, information superiority actually um, can win the war. And this is another subject. I do not think the U.S. does information uh, very well, <laughs> but I'll leave that for the time. We've got a, less than five minutes. So I want to get in a couple of more subjects. We're not going to obviously touch on. There's so many ramifications. We can't touch on everything. One is, OK, we talked about banking sanctions. The ones so far are not a, a, a robust enough. Swift would be people talk about oil and gas sanctions. That's difficult because oil and gas sells, even though. The current administration really wants us all off oil and gas and to use electric cars um, and to uh, and, and wind and solar power and that sort of thing. But China will buy whatever a Russia, whatever oil and gas Russia has, and they'll get it at a discount if others don't buy it. Germany has gone and made itself more dependent on Russia. Now they're talking seriously about not letting Nord Stream to be completed. That's an oil and gas pipeline from Russia direct to Germany, cutting out um, uh, cutting out Ukraine. And Representative Dan Crenshaw, somebody I admire, he he uh, he has pointed out that we imp we import in the U.S. 595,000 barrels of oil per day from Russia. The Keystone XL pipeline, which was closed down under the current administration, would have produced 830,000 barrels per day. Uh, one of the things I think the West and, and by the way, the Germans have also shut down their nuclear reactors, which are emissions free. Um, it seems to me one of the lessons out of this is that energy policy needs to be reappraised in, in the West. Jim, I think you're you're nodding, so I'll, make, I'll go to you first on that. Um, it's tricky because 40% of the EU's gas imports come from Russia. So a fast move would be traumatic for the EU. Uh, surprise, surprise, the sun does not shine very strongly in Northern Europe in the winter. And uh, the wind is somewhat erratic. And so... They need gas to compensate for the ups and downs of the renewable production. And um, it's not not enough is coming up from Algeria and or down from um, 
I guess, uh, Norway and, and um, Holland, the Netherlands. So uh, they definitely, this is a wake-up call. And um, the people who thought that Russia was a reliable gas supplier are in for a big surprise. Putin pinched the hose this summer and this fall, and the prices went way up. I think it's sometimes have been eight times increase in 12 months. And Putin has racked in, there's been a huge transfer of wealth from west to east due to these high, high gas prices. Um, presumably, the Europeans are can draw the conclusion that Russia is not a reliable energy supplier. Um, there's an interesting proposal, and, and the Turks are building this uh, Istanbul Canal, which would allow LNG into the Black Sea, which would be a game changer for Ukraine in its little part of the world. But um, it's... Um, I think I'll leave it at that. Look at one quick point about Putin's future. It's not smart to lose a war in Russia. Uh, 1905, they lost against the Japanese and the Tsars were almost toppled. Uh, we know what happened in 1917 when they were losing the war. Um, we know what happened in, uh, in Afghanistan. The Soviet Union collapsed uh, within a couple of years of Afghanistan. And we forget that in about, I think, early July 1941, when the the Germans had almost driven to the outskirts of Moscow. Um, a unit trundled up the road to Stalin's dacha, and he came out and said, you're here to shoot me. <laughs> Take me prisoner, because he so massively uh, mishandled the defense of Russia. So if Russia loses, it's going to be very hard for Putin to take hold on to power. Um, so keep that, put that in your pipe and smoke it for the future. All right. I'm going to make this my exit. I've got look, a dozen more topics I'd like to bring up. I don't think we have time right now. We, we may come back another day, but I'm going to make a offer a question, comment, and you talk about it as you will. One is people have to remember that we're talking about Russia, but Russia is in a de facto alliance at this point with Xi Jinping, who has been at best ambiguous about that. But if Russia can take uh, and conquer a foreign state or recognized state with independence, eh, Taiwan is in. Xi Jinping's words, a rogue province. Uh, do you really think the U.S. is going to do anything about that? And at that point, Asia is pretty much gone for the for, for the U.S. Two people are saying we have to pivot to Asia, but that means giving up Europe. We need to be able to do a lot of different things. And, we, and I would argue we don't have a military prepared to that, and the spending is not nearly where it needs to be in the capabilities. And if America's military is charged with climate change, well, then we're not going to spend as much energy as we need to on our adversaries, our enemies, and our prospective adversaries. Um, I think it's also important to worry a little bit about this point, about what Putin might want to do to the U.S. If he sees the U.S. beginning to put pressure on him economically or in other ways, sending military materials, as we should have been to a greater extent for years, as we have been to some extent, as we need to be, if the insurgency continues, he might say, you know, I have nuclear weapons. I'm going to threaten you with them. There's hybrid warfare. He has already used cyber warfare against the U.S., against, of course, Ukraine, against many other countries in Europe. All of these things remain. So I'm going to start with, uh, let me start with you, John, and we'll and, and you comment on whatever you think is important within this range of, of, of topics. John? So Cliff, you mentioned cyber. You know, I, I think this can be hugely important in the weeks and months ahead. I mean, I, I'm very worried about our critical infrastructure um, and that of our allies in Europe. You know, this 
these things are vital to our way of life and economic prosperity, but you know they're not well defended enough. Uh, and Russia has you know vast and you know, very capable uh, cyber uh, units, and you know they're very active. They probe all of our critical infrastructure, things like power plants, etc. So you know we we need to be vigilant. And we need to invest a lot more in in you know the type of uh, cyber defense tools that you know our center for uh, for cyber works on all the time. So um, that's something to watch. Very good and very important. Go ahead, Ivana. Yes. I would like to really echo what John just said in terms of cyber. Make no mistake, but Russia is definitely going to challenge the United States asymmetrically in cyberspace. Um, that's something that I really, really see. Um, and it's nothing new. Russia has been doing that for years. Um, also, the real question here is what we can do for Ukraine um, in terms of cyberspace. I think the United States and the United Kingdom are already helping, but we need to definitely invest more not only in defensive cyber capabilities, but also to strengthen our offensive cyber capabilities. Um, and real question is also when it comes to our European allies, um, I'm not actually entirely sure that many of them actually possess offens- offensive cyber capabilities. Now, some may cl- claim, you know, that actually, this is a very important to mention that uh, the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs a few weeks ago openly stated that World War III has already started in cyberspace. So they already think that we are with them. Um, you know, the problem, I think the most challenging part for us is how to challenge Russia um, asymmetrically, but not to be in, you know, in direct conflict with Russia, because this can really, really escalate uh, further and to have serious repercussions for our security. And Jim, your closing thoughts for now, because we're going to be discussing this a lot more in the days of the days ahead. Right. I agree with Ivana and John. And Ivana, I definitely agree with that we need to take the offensive in cyber. For some reason, we put up with literally billions of dollars and millions of men and women hours in repairing the damage. And we send a note to Moscow saying, gee, I wish you wouldn't do that. Uh, I think it's time to slap back uh, in an aggressive way and take out their capabilities. I was in Kyiv when the Russians uh, turned out the power. And they did it very subtly. It was just one corner key between like three and five o'clock in the morning on a Saturday night. And, and most people really didn't notice it. I think the Russians have enormous cyber capability. They have not shown their hand. They haven't shown what they are capable of doing. And, you know, watch this space. You may see this in Ukraine over the next uh, week or two. So that's my thought. All right. To be continued for now. Thank you so much, Ivana. Thank you, John. Thank you, Jim. And thanks to all of you as well who are out there and listening to us on Foreign Odyssey. Thank you for listening to Foreign Odyssey. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Odyssey on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.com. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.